This morning's Bible reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8. I'll read verses 26 through 32, and that's found on page 1,755 in your pew Bibles. Um, You should know that today we're continuing, if you're visiting, we're continuing our I Was Just Wondering series. All the sermons on this series are responses to questions that the young people of this congregation have asked. And a few people have said, you know, this almost feels like a a catechism sermon series because it's question and answers, right? It feels like the Heidelberg Catechism, only these are, uh, you know, kid questions. And today's question, as Rachel has already said, is how do we understand predestination? And to start getting our heads around that, Let's go to Romans 8, starting at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the the will of God. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This is the word of the Lord. Uh, So today's I was just wondering question, I think you can agree, is a doozy. How do we understand predestination? In in the first service, when Rachel mentioned that this was going to be the question, a sort of a low murmur of dismay went through the whole congregation. It's a heavy question. And maybe uh, you're surprised that it was one of the questions that the young people asked. Maybe you thought, well, we knew they'd ask about dating and relationships, but we we thought, maybe you cynically thought, we think they're too busy on their phones to think about such lovely things. But you'd be wrong about that, and you're not giving our kids enough credit if you don't think they're interested in these deep, difficult theological questions. When I first said that this was part of the series, um, Rachel mentioned that at her old church, Plymouth Heights, she said, oh yeah, kids over there, they all wanted to know about predestination. And before Bob retired, when I mentioned, yeah, we're going to do one of the sermons on predestination, he said, oh yeah, kids at crew, they always want to know about predestination. And I remember back when I was a youth leader, same thing. Young people are asking this question, just like you are asking this question. Why? Because it gets to the heart of how we understand ourselves and how we understand God and how we understand our relationship. So what do we say about predestination? Well, let's define it uh, best we can. Predestination is the belief that we do not choose God, but that he chooses us. He chooses us to follow him, and he chooses us to be saved. For those he foreknew, says our passage, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Beforehand, before our lives, he chooses us to be one of his children. And he does this not because you're so handsome or so smart or so excellent. He just does it because he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. It's his choice, not ours. And people hear that and, and they think, okay, they think about it for a while. And then these questions start to come up in their mind. And some of them are hard questions. And they tend to focus around two issues, fairness and free will. How is this fair? You know, it's great that I got chosen. I'm happy for that. But I've got an uncle who's an atheist. I've got friends who are unbelievers. Is it just that God didn't predestine them? Is it that from eternity they were attesting to go to hell? That's not fair. Freedom. Well, if God's already chosen me ahead of time, what does it matter what I do? Why should I bother making good moral choices? Why should I bother being a good person? If it's all predetermined, Am I just a robot? Is God like a marionette puppet master just dictating my life? So people start thinking about it, and then a lot of people, maybe some of you, say, I don't like the doctrine of predestination. I don't like it at all. It feels like this cold doctrine. It makes God seem like a cold, calculating control fleek who randomly chooses people. Those are important questions and those are important feelings and I want to address those in this sermon. But first, I want to do something a little more central and ask a, a fundamental question. Is predestination biblical? We all know it's part of our doctrinal world, but is it in the Bible? Does the Bible teach predestination? Well, we heard it in our passage, right? Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That seems to say God predestined us ahead of time. That is far from the only passage in Scripture that teaches something like this. And just to show you that, I'm going to go through, and I'll do it quickly, I promise, seven more passages. Seven more passages that show and teach predestination. One of the most famous, Ephesians 1. It says, God chose us, his children, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus. For the beginning of the world, we're predestined. John 6, 44. In that passage, Jesus is talking about why is it that some people choose to follow him and others don't. And Jesus says this, no one can come to the Father, no one can come to me, unless the Father draws him. God's got to do it. It's his choice. Sounds like predestination. Acts 13, 48, Paul's preaching to a church, Pisidian Antioch, and some of the people are converted. They choose to follow Jesus. They, they turn to Jesus. But listen to how that conversion is described. When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who were appointed for eternal life, almost like it had been decided ahead of time. 1 Peter 1, 2. Peter opens his letter by addressing the church and listen to how he addresses them. You who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Christ. According to the foreknowledge of the Father. 
Sounds like predestination again. Galatians 1.15, Paul talks about his own ministry and says, God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. I've been chosen to do this work since before I was born. Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God says the same thing about Jeremiah. He says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I set you apart to be a prophet to the nations. You were predestined to be a prophet, Jeremiah, says the Lord. And finally, Ephesians 1 verse 11, in him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of a God who works everything according to his purposes. So whatever it is that we feel about predestination, it's hard to get around these texts in the sense that God is teaching something very like predestination in Scripture. So then, what do we do about the more uncomfortable, what do we say about the more uncomfortable parts of this doctrine? How do we understand predestination? First, let me say this. I know that sometimes people talk about predestination in a way that makes God seem like a cold puppet master. But that is not the way the Bible talks about predestination. In the Bible, predestination is not a cold doctrine. I would say this. In the Bible, predestination is a great big bear hug of a doctrine which picks you up and spins you around. What I mean by that is when the Bible talks about predestination, it's not engaging in speculation about who gets saved or whether or not we have free will. Those aren't the questions the Bible is asking or talking about when it talks about this doctrine. Instead, when the Bible talks about predestination, it's trying to encourage people who are hurting. So Paul writes to the Ephesian church, this tiny little church in this big town of Ephesus, church that feels like they're about to get squashed. And Paul says to them, you're not going to get squashed because you were chosen by God before the beginning of time. God has an absolute hold on you. You're going to be fine. Jeremiah's feeling like, oh man, I don't know if I can do this prophet thing. And God says to him, no, no, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you'd be a prophet. I'm going to do this for you. You are going to be fine. The Roman church in our passage also feeling vulnerable in the middle of this pagan city. God says to him, don't worry about it. You are conformed. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is going to happen and nothing can stop it. I mean, can you hear that in all those cases, what we have there is not rational speculation, but a big bear hug, encouragement. Now, of course, what happens as the people realize, read these statements and they think about them a little bit, and then on top of this word of encouragement, they start to make rational and logical speculations about what does this mean about free will? What does it mean about people who are not saved? And we're free to do that, I suppose. But when we do that, we need to realize that we're building on top of something that's a little different than the foundation. We're making deductions that are not the primary intent of what the text teaches. And we can do that, but we're doing that with our fallen human logic. Here's an analogy to help you understand what I mean. Imagine I said to you after the service, man, I am so hungry I could eat a horse. Okay? And you could deduce from that with great certainty, Peter's hungry. And he's very hungry. And you would be correct. That would be absolutely right. 
But suppose you went on from that to think about, huh, Peter must be pro-horse meat. And he must have an extraordinary caloric intake. See, but now you're, you're taking my, my statement and you're starting to make deductions from it that, that are less certain. You see what I'm saying? In these Bible passages that I just read, the one thing you can be certain about, you can take to the bank, you can hang your heart on it, is that God loves you and he's not going to let you go. And he's always loved you. Deductions about free will and who gets saved or who doesn't get saved, now you're building on things that are a little less certain. Jesus actually warns us against too much speculation about these things. There's a story at the end of the book of John where Jesus is talking to Peter after the resurrection and he, he actually tells Peter what he's predestined to. He says to Peter, um, when you are old, someone will take you by the hand and lead you where you will not want to go. And what he means, he's telling Peter, you're going to die. You're going to be a martyr for your faith, which is what happens to Peter. So Peter hears what he's predestined for, and then he turns and he looks at John. And he says, well, what about that guy? What's going to happen to him? And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, mind your own beeswax. A loose translation. This is what he actually says. What is that to you? You must follow me. Don't worry about all those people. Know that you are loved. Live out of that love. Be a witness to the world. Show my glory in the world. Do all the things I've called you to do. Call people to faith. But what ultimately happens to the other people are in my hand, is in my hands, says the Lord. And, and that's good. Those are good hands. They're just and they're merciful. And you can trust them. When we talk about predestination, we should sound less like a philosophy textbook and more like Harry Jellema on his deathbed. This is an old LaGrave story that I think some of you know already. Harry Jellema was one of the most beloved teachers of philosophy at Calvin College in history. He was the, the one who taught some of the greats like Al Plantinga, Nick Wolterstorff. They were all students of Harry Jellema, who loved as a prof. And he was a member of LaGrave, died in, in 1982. Um, some of you, if you went to Calvin, maybe even had Harry Jellema back in the day. And if you did, you are not young. But, but it's possible. <laughs> he was a beloved prof, and he's dying, 1982. Uh, Jake Eppinga, who was a minister then, goes to visit Harry. And they have a talk about life, meaning of it. And here's what Harry said to here, Harry said to Jake at the end of that visit when they talked about life and after all his learning, after all his philosophy, he said, Jake, you know what? It's all grace. It's all grace. I put it to you that when, when Harry Jellema said it's all grace, he was teaching the doctrine of predestination as it ought to be understood. It's grace at the beginning. It's grace at the end. It's grace in the middle. Or you could say that the Apostle Paul and all those words I just read, if you wanted to sum them up in one short sentence, you could say, what is Paul saying here? It's all grace. 
Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He starts the train, he finishes it. He starts the journey, he ends the journey, and it's grace the whole way. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's all grace. And that knowledge leads to freedom. The best kind of freedom. It's not constricting. Here's an analogy that was, I learned from a guy named Ed Clowney, who used to teach at Westminster Seminary. He said, imagine if you're married, imagine that you're married, you've been married, say, for 15 years, and you go to your spouse and you say, say it's the man talking to the woman, honey, uh, why do you love me? This is a terrible question to ask, by the way. Don't, 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 do not try this at home. Honey, why do you love me? Terrible question to ask, an even worse question to answer. Honey, why do you love me? Suppose you just pressed your wife, and then your wife said this. Honey, I love you because uh, you're so trim and handsome, and because you're very successful at your work. Now, how would that make you feel? For a hot second, you'd say, oh, look at me, all handsome and successful. But then what comes next, right? Anxiety. I better stay successful, better work extra hard to successful, I might lose that love. Yeah, I, 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 I better you know, start working out at the gym, got to be trim and handsome or I might lose that love. Now you're on the hamster wheel of anxiety. Why? Because it's based on something that's in you. It's based on you. The only good answer to, honey, why do you love me is, I love you because I love you. I love you for better or worse, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. When the Bible teaches the doctrine of predestination, what it's saying is, what God is saying to us is, I love you because I love you. Nothing can take you from my hands. I am for you. Nothing can be against you. Now, does that mean that we have no responsibility? Does that mean that we can just do whatever we want because God loves us so much? No. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This love is given to us as a giant safety net under our life so we can walk the tightrope of life and do and try and risk amazing and difficult things. Of course we have responsibility. We're called to leave our sins, to discover our gifts, to practice the fruit of the Spirit, and to do it joyfully, to do it boldly, because nothing can take us from the hands of God. That's the freedom we have. And we don't do all these things to earn His impressed love. We do it out of gratitude because He first loved us. So young people, you asked, how do I understand predestination? Here's what I would say. Understand that God, in his love, has picked you up and spun you around and carried you into his light. And I urge you, using the words Paul uses in Philippians, to take hold of that for which Christ has already taken hold of you. Let this love fill your life. Build your life around this love that God has for you. Let this love start you up in the morning. Let it be your comfort at night. Let it fill your heart. Let it fill your mind. Let it fill your hands. Let it fill your mouth. It's a lifetime's work.
Let it be the absolute center of how you structure and plan your life. Because in that predestining love, you will find joy and you will find freedom and you will find your life's true purpose. Amen. Lord, we've been wrestling with um, some of the deepest and hardest and most difficult mysteries of Scripture. We thank you that once again it's taken us to the cross and to your love and to your promises to us. Lord, I pray that um, we may, we we know this doctrine, Lord, we know this truth. I pray that we won't just know it, but that we we will feel it. We'll feel it like the ground under our feet and that strong ground will will give us freedom to serve you and live lives of joy. In Christ's name, amen.